I want to read some quotes to you. It's from a brother, Christian brother, a veteran of the civil rights movement, a man who, like Peter and John in this passage, was jailed over and over again. Like them, he was beaten. In fact, he was beaten that he suffered so much that he suffered a concussion on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. He said this, Forgiveness is medicine for the mind, balm for the body, and healing of the heart. Release the need to hate, to harbor division, the enticement of revenge. Release all bitterness. Hold only love, only peace in your heart, knowing the battle of good overcoming evil is already won. Choose confrontation wisely, he says, but when it is your time, don't be afraid to stand up, to speak up, to speak out. Get into trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And now a quote from a more contemporary of ours, a famous Christian leader in England. He's bemoaning what he sees in the Bible, particularly in Acts, and its relationship to his own ministry. He says, whenever Paul and Peter show up, there's a riot. Whenever I show up, they serve me tea. (laughs) I say all this to you because I want you to hear something real. Our passage today real, reveals an important, I guess, reality of Christianity, both its evangelistic and activist impulse that reshapes the world. And my main point today is a, is a risen Jesus means good trouble. Let me start with how they got there, because we uh, didn't go through chapter 3 fully. There was a man by the gate of the temple. Each day his friends and family would pick him up, and, and they laid him at the gate of the temple to ask for alms, to ask for money. He'd been lame, which in the Bible usually means some type of paralysis of the legs his whole life. Peter and John walked by, as they naturally would, to go into the temple in the gate, and he asked them for alms. Peter responds, I I got no money, but I got this. And they prayed that he would be healed. And the man got up and went into the temple, leaping and worshiping. And as soon as they, if they, if Peter wouldn't leave well enough alone, as soon as they entered the temple, Peter got to preaching again, by which I mean meddling again. He told them the power was not from them, but from Jesus, the risen Lord. But you denied, he says these words, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you in his place, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, he says. 
And his name, by faith is in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know every day at the temple. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all y'all. That's the Southern translation. And right there in the middle of the temple, he tells them to turn away from their ignorance and their wickedness and turn to Jesus, the resurrected Lord. That's what ticks off the temple leaders and gets Peter and John arrested. That's what gets them in good trouble. A risen Jesus means good trouble for several reasons, but I will pick three of them because I'm a Presbyterian. A risen Jesus means good trouble because it upends everything. Starts in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Thanks for emphasizing that, Jen. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Sadducees were the elites, but they were also vehemently opposed to the resurrection of the dead. Not just of Jesus, but the doctrine of the resurrection. Melanie Chandler helped me earlier this week with this. She says, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They're sad, you see. <laughs> Appreciate that, Melanie. But they were also the power brokers of the day. They were the ones who maneuvered between the Jewish leader elites and the Roman Empire, the systems of hierarchy in Rome. They ran the national prayer breakfast, if you will. So they weren't just offended about the doctrine of the resurrection, which other people, even the Pharisees, that we always give a bad name, disagreed with, and they should have a bad name, but not on this point. This teaching and these teachers ex, ex, uh, um, revealing this kind of power and saying the things they said is a threat to their power and prestige. That's why the whole family shows up. If what they're proclaiming is true, then Jesus not, was not only justified about 50 days later when he's throwing over um, uh, the money changers and whipping stuff in the temple, but that Jesus was the Son of God and the King of all of Israel, and they were not. But more than that, the proof of the resurrection upending everything all the world and all the reality is that there is a healed man standing in front of them. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What you going to do? Jesus has come to upend the world as far as the curse is found. In every nook and cranny of the most powerful religious, political, and cultural institution of his day and our day, by the way, those are all the same things in his day. And from every misaligned ligament in our body to every wayward heart, Jesus' be resurrection begins to upend 
the reign and results of sin in our world. He upends it all. Not by turning it upside down per se, but by turning it right side up. There's an assumption here that it's all upside down anyway. That we are bruised and battered by the fall, both in individuals and systems and cultures and all of that junk. In the resurrection, Jesus is the author of life, the healer, and the Lord. And he writes the sides up. And as we, as resurrection people, become fearless in the sight of what's what's wrong in the world and all that's wrong in us. Because we know we can repent. Don't make repent a bad word. It's a good and beautiful word. We get to repent and turn away from wickedness and folly and turn to Jesus, where he upends our sin and frees us into new life. It is a beautiful word. I know it's been maligned, and rightly so, because of some ways it's been used. But that's really good news, unless in our folly we deny our brokenness and rebellion and cling to the wrongly-sided world we live in. But if we embrace it, the upending, we'll find ourselves in some good trouble. Could you imagine Just in America, if Christians, those who believed in the resurrection, and not anybody else, let the upending fully turn our hearts and habits right side up? What if Christians alone would repent and be healed of toxic tweets and spurious speech, be healed of pornography and other addictions? It would collapse systems in our world. Be healed of arrogance and gossip. It fundamentally shifts the structures that we operate in all day. Be healed of, demeaning, of needing to be so dadgum right all the time. Could you imagine? It would upend our worlds. We may lose a lot. Friendships are saying that we're being cowardice. You might be rejected, but that would be good trouble. But it gets worse because the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just upend our worlds and the world. A risen Jesus means that we're going to get in good trouble because the resurrection asserts one Savior. The temple leaders inquired, how'd you do all this? My translation. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit again, but the fourth time, and we're in four chapters, rulers of the people and elders, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, its builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no there is salvation in no one else, for there, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
The resurrection of Jesus means there's one person, one name, by which we can be rescued from the reign of sin and death. Those words are actually simple to understand. The concept is hard to hold for our modern ears. But I want you to know it wasn't easy to hold in the ancient ears either. How radical of a statement it is now and was then. They live in the Roman world. Salvation comes from a pantheon, a literal pantheon of gods. And yet they're Jews, which puts them on the minority culture not participating in the pantheon. And now Peter tells them that it's even narrower than you think. Narrowing all the way down into one person. Not Moses and King David, not all the other patriarchs of Abraham, not all of that. But to Jesus. Salvation doesn't come from keeping the traditions of the Torah and the temple. It comes through one man, one name. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Yahweh has been doing throughout the history of the world. Salvation comes through Jesus. Now, almost all religions or religious beliefs are exclusive. And Christianity is no different than that. Even atheism is exclusive, which would exclude me. But I don't want you to concentrate on the uniqueness of Christianity as a religion, though I think it is unique as far as I can tell. The only religion I know that is not about your good work but God's good work on your behalf. But Christianity isn't about a set of, just about a set of ideas or moral codes, though it has the most beautiful ideas and set of moral codes I know. Christianity is about Jesus. His name would have been Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus' son of Joseph. A man who lived a beautiful life, filled with power and mercy. He lived and he died. He rose from the dead. And he rocked around for a good 40 days before he was sent up to heaven and sent the Spirit down. These things take place in public. They're datable, recorded by a variety of witnesses. Christianity's uniqueness is a series of events about Jesus. As Lee Strobel says, the Jesus events placed its neck on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone who wishes to come and take a swing. The proclamation of Acts of the Gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead. Figure out all the theology behind it later. But that reality is the thing that sets him apart. Y'all, these claims about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, would you please, would, I, I had to this week, be as radical as they sound. It's absolutely the most revolutionary and unique claim about anyone, anywhere, ever. Peter's not saying Jesus is the way of salvation because he wants to be right and everybody else to be wrong. He's saying Jesus is the only way because of the absolute uniqueness of this Yeshua ben Yosef. Look at him. It's his uniqueness. It's that reality. 
Alexander Men, right during the Russian Revolution, a Christian, says this, I think nothing will prove the uniqueness of Christianity except one thing, Jesus Christ himself. Everybody's got a prayer book. Everybody's got scriptures. Everybody's got moral codes. Everybody's got that. But Jesus, and that's the amazing reality. That's what the uniqueness is all about. It's not about our worldview. It's about Jesus. Because the upending reality and uniqueness of Jesus don't just transform our hearts and bodies. And here's where we get into more good trouble. They unleash or unbridle our tongues. Sidebar. Sometime today or this week, just read chapters 3 and 4. I've had to skip some parts, and I'm bummed I did, but I didn't want to have you wait here for 15 minutes while it was being read. Jen, you're welcome. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John get locked up, right? But the charges wouldn't stick because of the clarity of something powerful happening here. They saw a guy who they saw every day asking for money, getting up and getting his praise dance on. And they had nothing to say. I love that. The high priests have the hush mouth. So without anything to say, they say, well, you can't say anything either. You can't talk about Jesus. You can't talk about this resurrection stuff. You can't talk about his uniqueness and how he's upending the world. And Peter says, nah, that ain't going to work. But listen, not just to the words back to them, but how they respond. And I just... With that level of confidence, I would be tempted toward arrogance. But look how they respond. When they realized, then when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. First, they just went to their friends. Told them what was up. And they heard it, and they, the friends and them, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They get into good trouble because their tongues are unbridled. They speak with utter courage to the people who just killed Jesus and have the power to kill them. By the way, only people who truly believe in the resurrection are not ultimately afraid to die. And then they go back with unbridled tongues and pray to the God who sent them there. They worship and ask for help. They're like, God, you see this, right? They're threatening us. Would you continue to give us boldness and courage when we're scared? Unbridle our tongues again. Let us, uh, l- let us speak. And please, Lord, 
as we're doing that, would you please stretch out your hand to heal people? Change our countrymen. Let our brothers and, sir, and sisters um, in, the tri- in Israel, give them mercy. Show them your way, your uniqueness, your beauty. And let us speak, Lord. Please, Lord, let's continue to talk about how truly amazing your Christ Jesus is. Y'all, this is the heart of good trouble. It's the heart of evangelism and activism. And I know those are scary words, and they're rightly scary words, because we have some pretty bad examples of both of those things. Man, before I was a Christian, I thought you people were crazy. With all the antics and the arrogance I saw, I still do with wonky evangelism and activism. But look at the humility of Peter and John. They were utterly humble in their prayer and expectant and hopeful and praying for boldness and courage to speak out what is true and against what is wrong. It's amazing. Sidebar, and not every community is tempted by this, but Maybe some of us are. You cannot talk about the uniqueness of Jesus and be arrogant at the same time because you done miss Jesus. The uniqueness of Jesus is absolutely real and it utterly destroys any arrogance if it's properly believed. And if you are speaking about Jesus and are arrogant, you're using our Lord, our God's name in vain. But here's the deal. Because it's Jesus and because he loves even those who oppose him, if you repent and return to God, he can heal you. And for the other side of us who find ourselves never talking about Jesus, to your neighbor, Repent and return to the God who can unbridle your tongue, who can heal you. I got to do both all the time. Join me in that. So the arrogance and the, uh, the antics were a total turnoff to me. But there was someone in my life who patiently, over time, just kept telling me about amazing things Jesus has done, both in the scriptures and their own lives. That's what got me. And I saw the signs and wonders that God would do. She stopped smoking her four packs a day. Quit cold turkey. Of course, she gained 50 pounds because, you know, addictions are like that, right? They're sneaky. But then she lost all of it and even more, became more healthy. And she said that Jesus actually crushed her sugar and white flour addiction because he had risen from the dead. It was like, Not sure exactly how that works, but go for it. But I saw it with my own eyes. It was a public display, a sign and wonder. She laughed more, celebrated more, grieved more. Those are signs and wonders, y'all. And she started caring about others even more, even though even before she cared about others a lot. She invited more people over and made them meals. She kept visiting the sick. She started picking up what we teased her about were her strays, people who didn't have a community, so she would be the community for them. 
all of the while telling me about how cool she thought Jesus was, telling me stories from the Bible, telling me stories of what she felt like he was asking her to do. She had an unbridled tongue. She started caring about the unborn, the imprisoned, the poor, legal systems, political issues, all stuff that wasn't there before. All trying to figure out how Jesus, the living God, resurrected from the dead, was actually working in time and space now. All because he was alive. That's my mom. My mom's tongue was unbridled about Jesus. Don't get me wrong, she tried all the sneaky evangelistic tactics, leaving Bibles open around the house for me to happen upon them. A couple tracks here and there spewing about my room. She tried to walk me down Romans Road. She even went with the evangelism explosion uh, questions one time. And for those of you who don't know any of that, ask your neighbor who's 10 years older than you. None of it got it from me. It was her reliance upon the resurrected Jesus. This guy. And her unbridled tongue about just talking about him a good bit that finally stopped me in my tracks. Y'all, I believe that religion was an opiate for the masses. And sometimes it is. I believe Christians were all about bullying people into being like them. And sometimes they are. I believe that other religions and non-religious people were better and smarter than Christians also can be true. But I couldn't shake Jesus. He was bewilderingly beautiful, and on my best days still is. He was complex, nuanced, my favorite word, and simple. He saw all that was broken in the world and still loved the oppressed and the oppressor. And I didn't know what to do with that. He saw my raw and misshapen desires and still loved people like me and just maybe liked and loved me. And then he was making my mom look more like him. Signs and wonders. Little by little, and then one wonderful night, my ears finally got what my mom's tongue was saying. And I believed. I believed the most outlandish, radical thing I've ever believed. That Jesus was the Son of God, sent to live and die and rise again to rescue the world and rescue me. I was 16 years old. Actually, my conversion is about being full of successes. My grades were right, my sports were right, everybody loved me but me. But only Jesus knew the real me, and he loved me for real. Not for my performance, but in spite of it. Not for my successes, but in spite of them. Not because I was good, because he and I are the only ones that really knew how not good I was. That, my friends, is what helped me upend, or him upend me would help me see what the most amazing person who ever lived was really all about. And he's the one that has begun to unbridle my tongue. Oh, I have a long way to go. You have a long way to go. To grow in seeing Jesus working 
and alive as far as the curse is found in our day? To grow in upending my own world of sin and folly? To grow in following Jesus as he upends the world and all its wickedness from systems to people? To grow in awe of the absolute uniqueness of Jesus? To grow in his absolute exclusive rule over my life? To grow in courage to speak up and speak out because love, love never remains silent? To grow in courage and boldness just to talk about Jesus. It doesn't have to be weird. There's lots of good stories. We tell lots of good stories all the time. Just talk about them a little bit. You don't have to understand all the complications and then, then therefores of Jesus. Just tell Jesus stories. Just use the Bible. Just tell things he said. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to talk about the whys. Therefore, if Jesus just tell cool stories about Jesus because he did some really cool stuff. To grow and experiencing my life as hidden in the life of Christ. To grow and being a person that gets in good trouble. Here's the deal. <laughs> and the place we can rest that Jesus cares much more about this than any of us do. He's committed to it more than we are. So we can rest in the loving arms of the most exceptional person who has ever walked the earth. And he's our beautiful Savior that is worth getting in good trouble for. Let's pray. Jesus, oh Jesus, maybe we enthralled with you more and more. Help us all yield to the reality that you upend the world, you upend our worlds, that you are uniquely our Lord and Savior, and that you unbridle our tongues and at the same time, at the same time, because of your grace and mercy, do all sorts of signs and wonders in our lives. And we just got to talk about it a little bit. Help us, Lord, do all these things. We pray in your name. Amen.